So last week, last supper, Jesus' last meal, he's got the 12 disciples with him. He sends Judas out after he predicts his betrayal. So now there's 11 guys. They leave. They go to the Mount of Olives, according to Luke. It's where Jesus usually went. It's interesting. He knows what Judas is about to do. He's about to betray him. Judas knows where Jesus usually goes. Jesus knows that Judas knows where he usually goes, and he goes to the same place. He's not trying to avoid anything at all. He sends Judas out. He goes to this place where he normally spends time with his uh, disciples, and we'll pick up in verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So what you have here is there's this picture that Mark is painting of Jesus' isolation. He's about to go through this very dark time, the darkest time in his life. And he has 12 guys who he spent three years with. One of them has left to betray him. And he says to the rest of them, kind of the picture in my mind is they're walking out to this um, garden and Jesus knows what's about to happen. He might not know exactly when, but he knows he's, he's looking at hours at this point and not days. And he just says to them as he's thinking about these events that are about to occur, he says, all of y'all are going to bail, actually fail. You're going to do both. You're going to fail and you're going to bail. Y'all are all going to be scattered. You're going to disown me, that word disown. You're going to deny me. You're going to pretend that you don't have any, you're going to say you don't have any connection to me at all. You're going to fall away. That word is to, um, to begin to distrust someone who you should be trusting, to desert someone who you should, who you should be obeying. That's what's going to happen to all of y'all. And Peter, typical, says, no way, I'm in. If everybody else is out, I'm in. And Jesus says, actually, you're, you specifically, you're going to pretend that you don't even know me. And Peter says, absolutely not. I'm sticking with you all the way through. So then get to this garden, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So they get to this, again, common place where they've been. He pulls Peter, James, and John with him. Those were the three he was closest to. And also, each one of those guys had made an explicit public declaration of, I'm not going anywhere. We just read Peter's in chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. James and John come up to Jesus and say, can we have the special seats when you come into your kingdom? One at your right, one at your left. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, absolutely, we're we're in. And so what he's saying to them is, all right, if y'all, if that's the, if y'all want to be on my team, then this is what it's going to take. And everything that follows 
the rest of chapter 14 and chapter 15, it's all rooted in what happens here in these 10 verses. You can predict what's going to happen with Jesus and what's going to happen with Peter, James, and John based on their behavior here in the garden. It's, this is the battleground for everything that is to follow. And what Jesus is saying to them is, all right, y'all have made a commitment. Your spirit is willing. You've got these great intentions of sticking with me. He doesn't question their motives at all. I'm sure their motives were great. I'm sure just like all of us on January 1st, our motives are great. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to, whatever it is, we have the best of intentions. Most of us bail within 30 days of New Year's resolutions. Same thing Jesus is saying to them. You have the best of intentions, but you're not willing to pay the price here in this garden in order to follow through with the commitments and these declarations that you've made. And that's really the whole contrast that you see is between Jesus and what he's doing in the garden and Peter, James, and John and what they're doing in the garden. And we'll come back to that here in a second. I'll flip over real quick. Verse 50, Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Um, so Jesus has been arrested. We'll come back and look at that in a couple of weeks. And he's right. Everybody bails. This whole idea about the guy running away naked. Some people think that's Mark who wrote the gospel. Could be, may not be. There's a passage in Amos 2, one of the Old Testament prophets. And God says on this day of judgment, even the strong will flee naked. And most folks say that's what Mark is trying to remind us of, that Everybody is gone, even these strong young people. Everybody bails on Jesus. Again, he's all alone. Verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, so Jesus is in front of the religious leaders, the high priest's house. They're trying to trip him up, get him to say something that they can use to convict him with. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Jesus was right. He said, this is what's going to happen within a matter of hours. It happened. Everybody bailed, and Peter disowned, denied him three times. For us, I think, kind of to step back and look at this. this is a, these are historical events. They're non-repeatable. Jesus isn't going to be arrested again. He's not going to be betrayed again. He's not going to be crucified again. There's never going to be a case where he's on trial. And so for us, we can kind of step back and say, well, okay, that's, that's what happened doesn't necessarily impact me at all because I'm never going to be in that situation. And maybe you think if I was, you would have done better. Maybe you figure you would have stuck by his side. You wouldn't have been a sissy like Peter. Something would have, maybe, that's what you think, and that's wonderful. But for most of us, we're, we're, we don't really see ourselves ever being in a position where it's deny or not. You know, there, there, are, there are about 200 million Christians who live in countries around the world where it's they're persecuted. It's illegal to be a Christian. And we might think, well, if I, if I was in one of those places, Saudi Arabia or someplace like that, and it was, you know, somebody put a gun to my head and said, I'm going to pull the trigger unless you recant and say you're not a Christian anymore. Maybe that's a parallel. But again, we don't live there. We're not moving in that direction as a country. And so it's easy to, again, distance ourselves from what's going on here. But I, what I want us to see is it's not quite so uh, 
foreign to where we are. You're probably not going to betray Jesus in any sense. Most of us are probably never going to explicitly deny him in the way Peter did, this, this idea of disowning and saying, I, I don't even know who he is. Most of us are probably not even going to go there. But this idea of falling away or deserting, I think that's a pretty common temptation that we can all face. We looked a few weeks ago at what happens towards the end of history. And wherever, you, however you want to read end times prophecy, I, that doesn't matter to me. You can peg it wherever you want, and, and we can talk about that. One thing that's very clear biblically is that things are going to become progressively difficult, more difficult for followers of Jesus. The closer we get to the end, and kind of by definition, every day is one day closer to the end, whenever the end is. We're moving closer and closer to that. So again, the the squeezing, that word tribulation kind of has the idea of squeezing. As we move towards the end, the squeezing is is going to become more and more intense for those of us for choosing to follow Jesus. And his expectation that he lays out in Mark 13, 13 is stand firm. I want you to stand firm until the end. That's what I'm expecting from you. Not falling away, not disowning, not denying, not deserting, standing firm. And so what we want to see, is there anything here that can help us prepare ourselves so we will stand firm when we're squeezed, whatever that happens to look like, whether that's ever our physical lives being in jeopardy or Often it's just our own spiritual lives that are in jeopardy. And that happens, again, on a pretty regular basis. So that's kind of the direction I want to take. A couple of things here. Uh, Mark 4.17, we looked at this a long time ago, back in the fall. The parable of the soils. There are four types of soil. Good, rocky, weedy, and hard. And what Jesus says is the, the rocky soil, it's shallow. Roots can't get down deep. The roots of the plant. So the gospel is kind of pictured as this seed, and it's trying to develop roots. In this shallow soil, they're rocks, so the roots can't penetrate deeply. And what he says is, when, when trouble comes because of persecution, that plant falls away. It's that same word that we see there when Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. So we can kind of make a connection there. The roots weren't deep enough to carry the disciples through this difficult time. And I would say this to you, if you're someone who's following Jesus, if your roots in him are not deep enough to carry you through a difficult time, either deepen them or quit and go find something else. If, it's not gonna, if it only helps you on vacation, it's, not, it's two weeks a year. What are you doing with the rest? How are you getting through difficult situations? If your faith in him is not deep enough to help you weather storms, again, I would say two things. Either get rid of the rocks so your roots can go deep or go find something else that's stronger. You're not, you're not reaping the full benefit of what it means to follow him. In Mark 8, I think it's 34, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the same word. Peter denied Jesus. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to deny or disown yourself. And so there's this, again, this expectation for him that we're going to be willing to do that, that we're going to have deep roots, that we're going to be willing to deny ourselves, and that we're going to stand firm in a day of temptation. So let's see. The key there is what Jesus did in Gethsemane. What did he do? He prayed. Simple. He prayed. He's isolated. He's alone. What he does is he turns to his father in prayer. Peter, James, and John fall asleep. I get it. It's late. They're used to going to bed. When the sun goes down, it's probably 11, 1130 at this point, and they're all tired, but they fall asleep. And Jesus stays awake, and he prays. And there's a couple of things you can see in terms of prayer. I don't know how you would 
grade your prayer life. My assumption is most of you would grade it pretty low just because you're being humble. On a 1 to 10, most of you are going to go under 5. Um, weak, you'd probably say erratic, not super powerful, don't necessarily see a lot of results. Those are probably the types of things that you would say about your own prayer life. Whether that's true or not, I think that's what most of us would tend to say. None of us really feel great about prayer. We always think, well, there's more I can do, and I could pray longer, and I could pray better, and all of those type of things. And there's some stuff you can see here from Jesus as you try to develop a deeper prayer life, and that's important if you're going to make it through. If you're going to stand firm, this is what Jesus does. His darkest hour, what does he do? He prays. Very simply, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Two things. We pray based on our understanding of God. Just like you relate to everyone you relate to based on your knowledge and understanding of who they are, so we pray based on our knowledge and understanding of who God is. And that's where most of us encounter our first level of difficulty. We don't truly know who God is, and so when we approach him in prayer, we don't really know what ground we're standing on. Because we don't really know who he is, we're shaky, we're not very confident when we approach him, because we don't necessarily know what he's done in the past, we don't really know what we can ask him to do now. And so we start looking for rationales or justifications for why he should answer our prayers, and we tend to look at either our circumstances and how bad they are and saying, God, have pity on me, or we look at our own self and say, well, look how I'm, I'm trying to do good, so can you give me a reward here? Can I get a carrot for how well I've been performing over the last day or week or month. That's how most of us tend to operate. That's not how Jesus does. He says, Abba, Daddy. It's a very intimate word. That's not how Jews addressed God in prayer. They were much more formal, much more reserved. God is transcendent. He's up here. But Jesus knew him as a daddy. And so that's how he addresses him. He says, everything is possible for you. And that's not an intellectual statement. That's a statement of trust. He knows. He knows everything is possible. Isaiah 51:22. this is what the Sovereign Lord says, your Sovereign Lord who defends his people. I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Jesus says, take this cup from me. And he's praying that, knowing God's taken the cup from his people before. He's saying to God, you've done this before. Maybe there's a chance you'll do this for me now. Because he knew God's track record, he approached him based on that. This is Genesis 18. God has determined to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they're wicked. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm about to wipe this city out. And Abraham's response, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Listen to this. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? It almost sounds like Abraham is trying to manipulate God, but he's not. He's just saying it like it is. God, you're the judge of all the earth. You're going to do right, aren't you? He's putting everything back on God's character. He's not saying because everybody in this city is wonderful or because my nephew Lot happens to live there because they... None of that. He's putting his hope in the fact that God is a just judge. He's approaching God based on who God has revealed himself to be, based on God's character. That doesn't change. That's solid ground. And so he says to him, I know who you are. 
It's not fair, if you want to use that word, for you to sweep the righteous away with the wicked. You wouldn't do that, would you? A just judge would not allow that to happen, and I know you to be that. You see the basis that he approaches God with. Flip over to Numbers. It'll be on the screen. You don't have to flip. The people are, are rebelling against Moses. They're being a bunch of babies. They're saying, we want to go back to Egypt. We're grumbling in the desert, and God's done. And God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you. You get to be the head of this new nation. And this is how Moses responds. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them now from the time they left Egypt. What he's saying there, God, you're, you're gracious. You abound in love. Be gracious to these people. He's not saying anything good about the folks. He's saying, God, I know who you are, and you're gracious, and you're forgiving, and you're kind, and you're merciful. So be that way towards these people. Just like you've always been that way towards these people. You've been forgiving these people since they left Egypt because they keep griping, and you keep forgiving. So keep doing that. You see the basis for Moses' prayer. It's who God is and what God has done for us. If we really want to see our prayer lives grow, we need to know who God is and what he's done, which means read the Bible. Read it. And ask as you're reading some section. Don't read the genealogies. They're, don't. It's not going to help you. Find something. Read a gospel. Don't, John is confusing. Read Mark or Luke. Those are great places to start. Read Acts if you like action. Read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings if you're into history. Pick some places where you're actually going to get some traction. Don't start in Leviticus. It's not... It's fine, but it's not going to help you. It's not. Pick a place where you're actually going to get some traction. And as you're reading, ask yourself two questions. What does this passage, whether you're reading a verse at a time or a chapter at a time or for 10 minutes, however you determine time length, what does this section say about God's character? And don't close the Bible until you can come up with something. One word. And what does this section say about how God acts? You should be able to find one of those two things in just about every section of Scripture. It's either saying something about who God is or how God acts. And as you begin to see that, I promise you, your confidence in prayer will go through the roof because you'll begin to approach him based on who he is and what he's done, not based on who you are and what you've done. You won't be trying to bargain with him anymore. You won't be trying to twist his arm and manipulate him. You won't be trying to figure out why he should answer your prayer. You'll be, be approaching him based on who he is and what he's done, and that's the best approach. The Bible says he doesn't change. There's no shadow in him. So who he reveals himself to be in the Bible is who he is now. If someone is sick and you want them to be healed, you don't go to God and say, they're a really great person. They deserve it. No, they don't. They don't. You go to him and say, God, you're a healer. That's how you reveal yourself in the Old Testament. Jesus healed everybody. He healed people who are righteous and unrighteous, men and women, old and young, Jew and Gentile. This person falls into one of those categories. Heal them because you're a healer and because you're gracious, not because they deserve it. If you're struggling financially, you need provision. Ask for it. And it's not because... God, I'm really desperate, or God, because I 
gave last week and I'm expecting you to give something back to me or because I'm working really hard or because I'm trying my best. That's wonderful. It's God, you're a provider. That's how you revealed yourself in Genesis to Abraham, the God who provides. You fed 12,000 people with a boy's lunch. I know you can take care of me and my family and I'm asking you on the basis of the fact that you provide to take care of us. Not based on the fact that we deserved it or we earned it in any way. Completely change the way you approach him in prayer. Much more confident, I would say. Second thing, you want to have a mix of your desires and his will. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. And most of us, again, I think we kind of fall down on this. We jump straight to not my will, but your will be done. And it, honestly, it drives me nuts. I think it drives God crazy because we skip the take this cup from me. What Jesus is talking about, the cup, it's the cup of God's wrath. You can read in the Old Testament, a lot of times God's wrath is righteous anger towards sin. It's pictured as wine in a cup. And he's either going to pour it on people or he's going to make them drink it. Jesus, everything that we know about him, he's not at all intimidated, afraid about being betrayed, about being arrested, about being tortured, about being crucified. That's not what he's trying to get out of. Every place that you read him talking about his destiny, he's absolutely committed to it. In Mark 10, I think it's 32, he says he, sets it, he decides to go to Jerusalem and everybody is amazed because he knows what he's walking into and he's leading the way. He's not saying, get me out of the suffering I'm about to experience. Somehow take the cross away from me. What he's saying is he knows when God's wrath is poured out, he's going to be separated from his father for some period of time and that's what's killing him. That's why he's sorrowful to the point of death. This son-father relationship has never been severed, more intimate than anything we can imagine, is about to be temporarily broken because God is pouring his wrath on Jesus. That whole idea, he looked on him and pardoned us. He looked on him in terms of he judges him for our sin. That's Jesus' cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you left me behind? Jesus is experiencing this relational separation from his father, which I don't fully understand, but that's what's going on, and that's the cup that he's saying, please, take from me. He prays for an hour, and then he goes back to Peter, and James and John, and finds him asleep, and then he goes and prays again, and then he comes back, and then he goes and prays again. It took me four seconds to read the prayer. He prayed for well over an hour. He's probably not just repeating the same thing over and over again. He's putting his cards on the table. This is what I want. God, this is what I'm scared of. This is what I want to see happen. I want you to take this cup from me. According to Luke, he prays so intensely, he sweats blood. This is his heart laid open before his father. And that's the model for us when it comes to prayer. We've got to trust God enough to tell him what we want. He's looking for mature sons and daughters, not ones who jump straight to not my will but yours be done. What do you want from him? That's one of the reasons we do the birthday thing. What do you want? Ask him. I met with a guy, there's a group of pastors who we met with a guy a couple of years ago, and he was pretty influential in our city. And uh, we asked him, he was kind of sharing his vision for the city, and we said, what can the churches do? And he listed out a bunch of stuff. And then we said, what can we do for you? How can we pray for you? He said, well, I don't pray for myself. I know that's not right. We were in a group, and it wasn't a 
appropriate to tell him. He's just dead flat wrong. What do you mean you don't pray for yourself? Jesus prayed for himself. Paul prayed for himself. David prayed for himself. Abraham, the Bible's full of people who pray for themselves. It's this false sense of what it means to be humble or submissive or holy and righteous. And it's just wrong. And that's how some of us approach him, unwilling to say, this is what I want. Lay it out there. If he don't want to give it to you, he's not. What, what was his answer to Jesus? No. He said no. If he said no to him, he didn't have a problem saying no to you. He doesn't have a problem saying no to me. He said no to Paul. He said no to David. He says no. So be bold enough, be confident enough in your relationship with him to tell him what you want. Some of you have children. It drives you nuts that they're constantly asking you for stuff every time you walk into Target. But there's a part of that that's wonderful because it means they're so secure in their relationship with you that they're going to tell you everything they want every time. There's that, that's how close they feel to you. And that's what the Lord is looking for from us. Put your cards on the table. Tell them what you want. And after you tell them what you want, repeatedly and boldly and consistently, then say, but it's, it's your deal. Not my will, but yours be done. Then you can play the submit to him card. But don't play it too early. Make sure you put your heart on the table. That's what he's looking for. Abraham and God bargain back and forth in Genesis 18. Read it. It's this great picture of what he's looking for. He's looking for, again, mature sons and daughters, not babies. He's looking for people who can, you can look out at what's going on. You know who he is. You know what he cares about. And you can say, this is what I want to see happen. This is what I want. He gets to decide yes or no. Don't say no for him because you never ask. Close with this. The good news. Verse 28. After I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He just predicted the scattering and the falling away, and he follows it up with what? I'm not going anywhere. Y'all are going to fail. Y'all are going to bail. This is where I'm going to be. Meet me there. Meet me. He leaves it open for them. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 says this. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. That's a picture of conversion. We die with Christ so we can live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's what we've been talking about. Stand firm to the end so we'll reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. That word disown in 2 Timothy, that's the same word that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all use for what Peter did to Jesus. That section we read with Peter denying, it's the same word there. What happened to Peter at the end? Who remembers? He's restored. He disowns Jesus. Jesus says you can meet, and he's restored. If we disown him, he will disown us if we disown him repeatedly. It's the only thing I can figure. He's, our faithlessness doesn't trump his faithfulness. It's the other way around. His faithfulness to us trumps our faithlessness towards him. And even though every one of those guys deserted, denied, and disowned, he said, I'm in Galilee. Meet me there. And they met him there, and they were restored. Jesus predicted Peter's restoral, um, restoration before he even fell. After you've, been, after you've turned, strengthen your brothers. And read the end of John 21, where he restores Peter fully. 
to relationship and to ministry. That's, that's the thing for all of us. We talked last week about the parable of the prodigal son and the elder son, the one who relates to God based on his track record, based on his own righteousness, his own work. I kind of fall into that camp. I contend to be an old covenant guy based on externals. Here's my list of all the good stuff that I've done. So now reward me based on all of this good stuff. It's a sin. It's wrong. There's another son in that story, the younger son, who takes his inheritance and goes and he blows it. And he decides it's time to come home and this picture is wonderful. The father, he's not sitting on the, in his, on the couch watching TV, waiting on his son to come home and grovel. He hadn't forgotten about him. It says when the son is still a long way off, the father sees him. The only way to me, he can see him if he's a long way off, if he's standing on the roof of his house looking for him every day looking for him, waiting on him to return. And as soon as he sees him, what does he do? He takes off after him, welcomes him back into the family. Our faithlessness doesn't trump his faithfulness. If you're someone today and you would say, I've deserted, I've disowned, I've denied, I've fallen away on some level. Sinful behaviors, sinful thoughts, whatever it is, you just say, I've, I fell away. Hear this this morning. He is standing on the roof of the house. And he's waiting for you to take one step. One. He'll cover the rest of the ground if you'll make one step towards him this morning. Let's pray. God, my prayer for any man or woman in this room who would say, that's me. I've fallen away. I pray that they would hear, not from me, they would hear from you the invitation to come home. Right now in their hearts, they would hear their father saying, come home. And God, I pray they would not resist. Like that young son who decided to come home, like Peter and the, and the ten other disciples who said, all right, we'll, we'll be in Galilee. We blew it, but we'll, we'll re-up. I pray for that man and that woman in this room today, that they would make a choice even now to take one step back towards you. God, for any here this morning who would say, I'm being squeezed, Lord, would they turn to you this morning, call out for help, lay their cards on the table, what they're looking for. You said in Luke that you sent an angel to strengthen Jesus, and I pray that would be reality for us. Ephesians 3.16, that you long to strengthen us with your spirit in our inner being, and that we would realize it's not just that our, it's not just that, uh, our flesh is weak, it's that your spirit is willing and is longing to come and fill us and to empower us to stand firm until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand up. We're going to close with worship. Uh, we have ministry teams up in front. If you want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. If you want to pray uh, on your own, you can come and kneel here at this, uh, these front rows, and we'll leave you alone. And I would say, 
if that's you, if you're that, if you've bailed, if you feel like you've fallen away, I want to strongly encourage you this morning. Take a step back towards him and see what his response is.